Good evening. If you go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we're going to be taking our study from verses 13 through 18 this evening and speaking about the comfort of Jesus' return. How are you and I supposed to handle the deaths of loved ones in Christ? The Thessalonian Christians had just left their life in idolatry in the past few months, maybe in the past year. And as they did that, they probably had no idea of how bad things would be, though Paul warned them that things would be bad. When they left their life of idolatry, when they left their friends, or rather their friends rejected them and the world around them rejected them and sought to kill them and persecute them, I imagine that left them in a pretty difficult situation. As we read 1 Thessalonians, as we've been studying this book over the past couple of months, we've seen very clearly from our first study in 1 Thessalonians, the persecution that hit them was hot and very potentially deadly. As Paul in in chapter 2, well, really chapter 1, 2, and 3, in each chapter, he talks about how much they were suffering. And now he gets into chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, and he talks about how they need to handle the deaths of loved Christians. I don't think that it is too much to say that maybe this persecution was deadly, and maybe this persecution took the lives of their loved ones in Jesus Christ. What were they supposed to do? Paul had been taken from them too soon. Their conversations with Paul, their instruction from Paul was cut short. They had potentially lost fathers, mothers, husbands, wives, children, or at the least close, close friends in Jesus Christ. They had left the world and they had been rejected by the world in which they were in. And now the only people they had around them were those fellow Christians. And now some of them were dead months into this life-changing decision to follow Jesus Christ. How were they supposed to handle the deaths of loved ones? When I wrote this sermon earlier uh, this week, uh, I reflected in my introduction on how I hadn't really ever experienced the deaths of loved ones before. (laughs) Uh, Well, as of last night, that's changed, hasn't it? Uh, with my grandpa dying last night, uh, that is, it's been kind of an odd thing as I've looked to this sermon, as I've looked to talking with you guys about these things this evening. Death is not really something I've ever experienced until uh, less than 24 hours ago, the death of a close loved one. But even before I wrote this sermon, before I even considered talking about this, and even as I've began to experience this, and will experience that this week with my family, I know what it's like, at least I've seen what it's like to experience the death of loved ones, though I've not experienced it as much as many of you. We all know it's pretty empty when a loved one dies, even if the loved one is in Christ. The pieces of our life just 
fall down. The plans that we have made with where we're going to go from here on out, that the plans that we've been talking about, maybe the day before they died or the weeks before, those might even become completely pointless without the people that are now gone and dead. How are you and I supposed to handle the deaths of one another, the deaths of loved Christian ones, the deaths of loved family members in Jesus Christ? Well, Paul, even though death is super, super difficult to deal with, and though there is lots of grief that comes with death, Paul says here in this passage, by the things that he says, that how we handle the deaths of loved ones in Christ matters. It matters. And so as we consider this question of how should we handle the deaths of loved ones in Christ, let's notice here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13 how Paul comforts us with respect to Jesus' return. Notice verses 13 and 14 with me first. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. It's interesting to consider that though most of this letter that Paul writes is a reminder to the Thessalonians as he continues to say, you know the things that I'm writing to you about, you know what I'm talking about, you're already doing the things in which I am writing down. This paragraph right here is the one paragraph in the entire letter that is a paragraph of correction about something they did not know about. When Paul says, I do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, that's something he says multiple times throughout the epistles. He says it in Romans, he says it in Corinthians, he says it here, and what follows every time is a matter of great importance for these Christians to understand. In each of those situations, when he uses a phrase like this, no matter how difficult it is to actually believe this in our own minds, the Thessalonians, due to Paul's, probably to Paul's untimely and, and quick escape from Thessalonica because of persecution, he was not able to tell the Thessalonians about what happens to Christians when they die. The Christians were waiting for Jesus' return. It's clear throughout this letter. The Thessalonians were faithful. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10, you have left idolatry and you are waiting for Jesus' return. But Christians, these Christians did not know, though they were waiting for Jesus Christ to return from heaven, it is very possible that they thought that the dead ones in Jesus Christ would actually miss out on that day. And so they were at danger of grieving like those in the world. And so Paul does not want them to grieve like those in the world, like those who have no hope. And so in verse 14, he shows them what I think is really interesting is he understands they have a lack of belief. But what he does is he shows them the consequences of a belief that he already knows that they hold dear, a belief that he knows they already hold dear. He says, if you believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, 
than Thessalonian Christians, that means that we too, one day, when we die, if we believe this fact, if we believe in Jesus' power, if we believe that that happened, then we will also raise from the dead. And God will also bring along with him in his ultimate coming those who have died already in Christ. Now, we read those words and we hear those words, and isn't that pretty easy for us to just say, yeah, whatever. (laughs) The resurrection of loved ones in Christ for you and I today is no mystery. If our loved ones are Christians, if they are faithful to Jesus Christ and they live a life of treasuring Jesus Christ and putting their faith in Him and in His resurrection, we know when they die, they're going to raise again. But that is not common knowledge for these Christians here at all. And so for us to appreciate that, let's think back for a moment to that first resurrection, at least the first fruits. Uh, Christ and his resurrection. Think back to what it would have been like to be one of those disciples who followed Jesus here on earth. You follow Jesus here on earth, and as you come to know this man who seems like everybody else at first, you recognize, you begin to recognize that this man is deity. And you give up everything and you follow him. You leave your family, you leave your home, you leave your friends, you leave your career, and you follow him. And then one day the mobs take him, beat him, crucify him. He's confirmed dead, put in a tomb. He's gone. The one that you have followed for years and given up your entire life for is gone. What what do you do after that? For years, your life has been completely changed. And now the one that you centered your entire existence around that changed everything about what you thought is gone. He's dead. And then three days later, he appears to you in your house and starts eating some food with you and says, Hey, what? I'm here. Touch me. I'm alive. Did you know I told you things, these things before? Imagine how life-changing that would be to see a man with holes in his hands, a cut in his side. The man you saw was dead, is now walking around, eating food, talking to you, and then he ascends back to the Father some days later. That's life-changing. When Paul went to the Thessalonians, that's the life-changing truth that he taught the Thessalonians. And when the Thessalonians learned of this truth, that had to be life-changing. That's what they were putting their faith and their hope in. But what they didn't recognize was that power was on their side, and that's what Paul is telling them now. That's the life-changing fact that Paul has just told these Christians. If you believe that Jesus Christ actually did that, no matter how unthinkable it was in that culture back then, to believe that someone could actually raise from the dead, he's saying, you will do the same. Your loved ones will do the same. What he's saying to us Christians is that though we may have brothers, sisters, parents, children, loved ones, close friends in Jesus Christ who have 
died in this, died here. Their physical bodies aren't moving anymore. Paul's telling us they aren't dead, dead. One day they will rise. As Jesus talks about in John chapter 11, I believe it's verses 25 and 26. Though he die, if anyone believe in me, I'm the resurrection and the life. And though any, if you believe in me, though you die, you will live. What Paul is teaching here to these struggling Christians is this momentous, this momentous, uh, momentous is probably not the right word, but the amazing fact that their dead ones in Christ, their loved ones in Christ, would one day rise just as Jesus did. Well, as soon as you hear that, the question, remember, they don't know, they don't understand the timing, they don't understand any of this. Remember, we've got to put ourselves in their shoes. They've got to be wondering, how, when, Describe to me how that is going to happen, that they are one day going to rise, that that one day the Lord will bring him, bring those who have fallen asleep with him. Well, notice how Paul goes on to describe that and explain that in verses 15 through 18. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I want us to notice two specific things about this text that are interesting to me. The first thing that we notice is that the dead are going to be raised whenever Jesus descends from heaven. And isn't that an amazing picture that he paints here in verses 15 to 16? He says there is going to be a cry of command. There is going to be a trumpet. The voice of an archangel is going to cry out. The trumpet of God is going to sound. And the Lord, Jesus Christ, is going to descend from heaven. An amazingly beautiful picture. The second thing that I think is interesting in this passage is that as we go on to verse 16 and 17, we notice that we are all going to meet the Lord in the air. But here's what's interesting is there's actually a particular order to how that's going to happen. Paul says, essentially... The resurrection of your loved ones is so secure that they are going to rise first and they are going to meet the Lord in the air. Actually, before you meet the Lord in the air, though it's going to happen essentially at the same time, you know, they're going to raise first. We're not even going to precede them and they're going to meet the Lord in the air. And then after that, the second stage is we who are alive will meet the Lord in the air. He's telling them their resurrection is so secure, they're not even going to precede you. So think about that day. Picture that day for a moment. As a child, whenever I looked outside, I saw a cloudy day. I I was awaiting that day. I kept picturing it, kept listening. I would sit outside and just kind of look at the clouds, hoping it would happen. I mean, I can't even fathom how awesome that day is going to be. What a joyous day that is going to be. Just picture that. 
all the saints who have ever lived, who have given everything for their Lord, some of them even their lives, meaning they suffered in terrible ways here on this earth, gave their lives for the Lord, everyone rises to meet the Lord in the air and will be together forever with Him. What an amazingly joyous time that will be. It's unfathomable. But for you and I today, what are the modern applications of this for you and I today? What is the significance of this passage for you and I today? Uh, There's probably a lot of things that are significant in this passage that we could talk about. I'm going to talk about tonight four things that are significant for us to learn today. The first one will be the most lengthy that we talk about simply because of its technical but very important nature. I believe the first thing that we learn from this passage is that Jesus will literally come from heaven and all the children of God will meet him in the air. And you might at first wonder, well, why in the world do you have to even say that? It's obviously stated in the passage. Why do we even need to spend time talking about this? I believe it's important to talk about this because there are actually many who are beginning to disagree, many professed Christians that are beginning to disagree that this passage literally says that one day Jesus is going to literally come from heaven with the cry of command and raise the dead in Christ. And the reason they say that is because this passage right here, you might notice that this language right here in this passage is not unfamiliar to us. It's seen in many other passages. In fact, this language here in this passage is seen most clearly in Matthew chapter 24. Go ahead and actually turn to Matthew chapter 24 with me. And let's notice why people struggle seeing that 1 Thessalonians is actually referring to a literal return of Jesus in the clouds. Uh, We could spend all sorts of time in Matthew chapter 24 and talk about all sorts of things. But what I want for us to do is simply notice Matthew chapter 24 and notice the similarities between our passage in 1 Thessalonians 4 and Matthew 24 verses 29 through 31. Matthew 24, 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in the heaven, in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to another. Just notice the similarities between this passage and our passage there in 1 Thessalonians 4. I think most obviously we've got the Son of Man in the sky. We've got angels coming down with a trumpet. They're gathering the elect. I mean, that's 1 Thessalonians 4 right there. But here's what's interesting. Though this sounds like the final day of judgment, look back in the first few verses of Matthew chapter 24 and notice what is it? What questions is Jesus answering at the beginning of Matthew chapter 24? What's he talking about? 
Well, as you notice in verses 1 to 2 of Matthew 24, you notice they're walking around the temple, the the buildings of the temple. And Jesus says there in verse 2, not one stone of these these buildings here is going to be left upon another. And then in verse 3, the disciples ask, when is that going to happen? And what is going to be the sign of your coming? When is this going to happen? When is this temple going to be destroyed? And in verse 4, Jesus begins answering that question. And you know, he's still talking about it there in verses 29 through 31. Whenever he speaks of him coming in the clouds with the trumpet call and the gathering of the elect. And in fact... We go on to verse 34. Notice verse 34 of Matthew 24. He says, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. We cannot come into Matthew 24 and say, well, this is also referring to the ultimate day of judgment when Jesus returns in the clouds, when he literally descends. This is clearly referring to the destruction of Jerusalem, a time, an event that would take place in the lives of the people standing right here and there. As we think about that, what we think, well, how in the world could it be that Jesus would say he would come in the clouds, people would see him in the clouds, there would be a trumpet call and the elect would be gathered. How is it that you could say that, Jesus, and that simply referred to the destruction of Jerusalem? We can't get into all the details of that tonight because that's not our purpose. We've studied these things many times on Sunday nights and on Wednesday nights, but I'll give a quick answer for you here. This language right here in this passage is not unfamiliar to even Matthew 24. Rather, this language is seen throughout the Bible in the Old Testament and the New Testament. When the Son of Man is coming in the clouds, that is a picture of God's power and judgment being brought against a nation. In fact, we see this, notice on the screen, Isaiah chapter 19 and verse 1. As as the Lord declares judgment against Egypt, what does he say? Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. Revelation, as Jesus is beginning to uh, bring uh, wrath upon the Jews and then after that upon the Romans for their wickedness, he says at the very beginning, Behold, Jesus is coming on the clouds. Every eye is going to to see him, even those who pierced him. When Jesus comes on the clouds and gathers his elect, that does not always mean that he literally comes on the clouds and literally takes everyone from the world. Rather, it's a picture of judgment. He is coming in power. And don't worry if you're faithful to me, even if you die, you will be secure no matter where you live on this earth. You will be secure. My angels will gather you into heaven. This is common judgment language. So here's the problem. Many then come into this passage and recognize, well, this is common judgment language. And we come to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And isn't that just common judgment language too? Doesn't that just mean also that Jesus is not literally going to come in on the clouds, but rather this is referring to the destruction of Jerusalem. What what these who misunderstand 1 Thessalonians 4 do is they come in and they say, since Matthew 24 refers to the destruction of Jerusalem and Revelation 1 uh, is preparing to talk about the destruction of Jerusalem, then that must mean that every reference in the New Testament to resurrection, to the 
the coming of Jesus in the clouds is referring to the destruction of Jerusalem. But there's a problem with this. In fact, there are many, many problems with this. I'll give you three quick answers as to why we cannot and must reject this view. And remembering that this is... We're not afraid of truth here, right? We will accept truth no matter where it leads us. But I reject this, and we should all reject this, not because we're afraid of truth or, or because we seek to hold on to, to certain uh, doctrines that say, well, we must have Jesus come in the clouds one day. Well, we don't have to hold on to that. We only have to hold on to what the Bible tells us. I believe here in First Thessalonians 4, Jesus is told to uh, Jesus Paul is teaching us that Jesus will come in the clouds the problems with an 8070 a destruction of Jerusalem fulfillment of 1 Thessalonians 4 three three problems the first thing that we notice is that it does not fit the context of 1 Thessalonians remember what's the context in Matthew chapter 24 the disciples have asked when is the temple going to be destroyed what's the sign of your coming When is this going to happen? They want to know about the destruction of Jerusalem. But what's happening in 1 Thessalonians 4? What are they concerned about in 1 Thessalonians 4? Well, Paul's trying to deal with the problem of Christians who have died. And these new Christians are suffering. And they need hope. And they need comfort. Is it in context for Paul to refer to the destruction of Jerusalem when these suffering Christians need comfort? It's not in context at all. And that really leads to our second problem, knowing that the Thessalonians are dealing with this grief and are struggling to grieve like the world. Wouldn't it seem also kind of odd for Paul to come in and say, I know you're struggling with grief, but guess what? One day soon... Jerusalem, which is over a thousand miles away, is going to be destroyed and Jesus is going to have great power. Does that make sense at all in the context or in the Thessalonian situation? No, it does not make sense in the slightest. Rather, I would say that's actually quite insensitive of Paul to go on and, and spell out this theology for them right here in the middle of 1 first, first, first Thessalonians 4 when they are struggling. The destruction of Jerusalem has great theological consequences, but over a thousand miles away, that was not going to affect the sadness of these Christians. I think the third and the biggest problem, though, is think about this. If this passage right here in 1 Thessalonians 4 was fulfilled when Jerusalem was destroyed, we've got a problem because did dead Christians rise? Were all the live Christians in the world taken up into the skies, into heaven to be with the Lord forever? No. In fact, uh, notice what Revelation chapter 21 and verse 4, just listen, Revelation 21, 4 describes for us what it will be like when we are with the Lord forever. It says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither that shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Try telling the millions of Christians outside of this country right now who are dying every day for the cause of Christ that their tears have been wiped. Wiped away, and that they are with the Lord for forever. 
That's what they try to do with this passage, by the way, is they say, well, we are with the Lord now. We're with the Lord now. That's how it's been ultimately fulfilled. We are with the Lord. Then why are they still being persecuted? Why are they in tears? Why are they dying? No, that is false. They are experiencing real pain. There are many proofs against this false teaching, but I hope this will be helpful to you to know that for sure we can have comfort because we still are awaiting a literal return of Jesus from the clouds. The second thing I want from us to learn from this passage is that when Jesus, when the Lord descends from heaven, we will be forever with dear Christians and with the Lord. Many ask what heaven will be like. What will we do? Will we know one another? We're not given all the answers in this passage, but I believe we are given two very helpful answers. The first thing that Paul says, and I think the primary importance of what heaven is going to be like when Jesus comes and takes us to be with him is that we will be with him. That's the first most important thing. We will be with the Lord. And for those who treasure Christ and for those who find their greatest joy in Christ and in serving him and in knowing the perfect one and desiring to be close to him, talking to him when we cannot see him, that is joy. That is an ultimate joy. That is a day of reward that we will be with the Lord. But we must not forget why Paul is talking about this here in this Situation. He's answering a very specific concern. What about our Christian brothers and sisters in Christ who have died? I believe every passage, every verse in this passage answers this concern here for us. Notice how he says in verse 17, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. I don't believe this is just a statement declaring that we're all going to go to heaven, everybody, both dead and living. I think there's something even more here. Many people ask, are we going to know one another in heaven? Notice again, you will be caught up together with them. We often wonder if we're actually going to know one another in heaven, but I think we can take comfort because I don't think there is any point at all to say that we are going to be caught up together with dead loved ones in Christ. If Paul is saying that we if Paul actually means to tell us that we aren't going to know one another in heaven, there's no point to saying anything like that. Certainly, uh, Jesus says in Luke chapter 20, 20 and verses 34 to 36 that when we get to heaven, the nature of our relationships is going to change. We are going to be like the angels. There is not marriage in heaven. The, our relationships change. But that does not mean that Jesus wipes our memories and turns us into uniform robots. And we're all walking around not knowing who in the world we're talking to or looking at. We don't know a lot about what heaven is going to be like, but I don't think Paul would have said you will be caught up together with them if we don't even know who them is, who they are. So take comfort. We will be together with our great Lord and with our loved ones in heaven and we will know them. The third thing that I think is significant about this passage is that because we will be Reunited with those asleep in Christ and with the Lord, we should not sorrow like the world sorrows. This is Paul's main point in writing this passage here. 
Unfortunately, when we notice that there in verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians 4, you notice, notice that this passage could actually be read in two different ways. He says, I don't want you to be informed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. On the surface, we could actually read this in two ways. And unfortunately, this has been the subject of, I believe, a little bit of misuse in the past. And some have come in and said that really what Paul is saying is that we ought not grieve at all because that's what the world does. We ought not grieve at all because that's what the world does. I believe we need to reject that outright because of what the Bible says about sorrow. Does the Bible at any point reject our humanity? Does the Bible at any point say that we should not sorrow? If this were the only passage, would we have any other passage that would say tears are wrong? No. In fact, uh, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 27, when Paul is referring to Epaphroditus, his fellow worker in the gospel... How does he refer to his joy that Epaphroditus is alive and not dead? He says, oh, I'm so joyful lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Even Paul says that if Epaphroditus would have died, he would have had sorrow upon sorrow. The Bible does not reject the idea of grief. Paul is not saying do not grieve at all. Rather, here in 1 Thessalonians, Paul is teaching us about the resurrection so that we would not grieve as if we were hopeless like the world is hopeless. But what does it mean to grieve like a hopeless person? I don't think that Paul is saying that our pain will only be minor. I don't think he's saying that in the slightest. Especially as I've experienced uh, the death of my grandfather in the past 24 hours. I know it's tough and uh, it's been tough. Think about it even more in a more extreme way. You marry, I married Ashley at 22 and man, that would be awesome if we lived to be 82. But what if Ashley dies at 82 and I'm still around? We all know I'll be around for probably 18 more years or so. I'll hit 100. What's that going to be like? That is going to be tough. You think about marrying someone, being that close with them early on in life and spending your entire life with them and then they die. That's tough. Paul's not saying it won't be tough. But Paul also says it matters how we handle the deaths of Christian loved ones. It matters because too often I hear and we all hear Christians talk and act like they have zero hope left in life when their loved ones die. They're angry with God. They're permanently depressed. They don't know how they will ever, ever live again. There is a void when loved ones die. When Christian loved ones die. But what happened to not having our hopes in the people of this world? 
Whatever happened to being a people defined by our confidence and our hope in our future resurrection? Whatever happened to being a people who treasured Christ more than anybody or anything in this world? Whatever happened to that? If Ashley dies before me, I will stop and I will grieve and it's going to take a lot of time for me to get up again. But if I look like the rest of the world in my grieving and I lose all hope and purpose in my life, her death will not glorify God. Her death will only cast doubt in the world's eyes as to the hope that we actually talk about. And so here's some quick exhortations. If death is that difficult, the first thing we need to do is we need to mentally prepare for the deaths of our Christian loved ones now. We might not have time to prepare for death at all. Uh, I know with my grandfather, we've had a lot of time, but yesterday was completely unexpected. But what we did over the past 15 years after he started having health difficulties was huge for where I'm able to be at right now. I knew, I knew that his time was coming short. And even if I didn't know that, we all must have this attitude of preparing for death now, preparing for the death of our loved ones now, because as Bryn has talked about many times, whether people die young or old, even if we have someone for just five years here on earth or one year or one month, that's a blessing that we did not deserve. And we need to prepare now. The second thing we need to do is we need to lean on God now because if we don't lean on God now, we will not lean on him when we experience the deaths of loved ones. The third thing we need to do when death comes is we need to recognize that this is Satan's opportunity to completely make a shipwreck of our faith and cause us to wallow in hopelessness and faithlessness And sorrow for decades to come. We must not miss that this is Satan doing this. We must not miss that Satan will, will seek to attack us. Because he knows that death is the weak point of every Christian. We must prepare for that as well. And so when death comes, picture this awesome resurrection scene that we've seen here in 1 Thessalonians 4. Picture it and know the awesome confidence of what is going to happen. That's been so helpful for me over the past 24 hours. Picturing that my grandfather right now is in his rest. And one day this scene right here is going to happen to him. And he is going to raise from that grave and adopt an imperishable body. And I'm going to be with him. And I'm going to reign with him forever with the Lord. The fourth overall thing that I want for us to uh, learn this evening from this passage is that if we know the difficulty of death and the confidence in our future resurrection, that should lead us to encourage one another with these words that Paul has spoken. That was how Paul hoped for them to apply these words. You see that there in verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And so I'll be very brief about this uh, since we're running low on time. It is so difficult for us at times to think about what it's going to be like when future deaths happen, when the deaths of loved ones happen. 
but we have an awesome confidence that we can be secure in right now, that I am secure in right now, that I've been already experiencing today, is that what is better than the comfort of other Christians who believe the exact same things you do that one day your loved one is going to raise? What comfort is there that is better than that? And so though it is difficult for us as Christians when someone experiences the death of a close loved one, it's difficult for us. We don't know what to say. We kind of, they start being a recluse. They start running away very easily and they don't want to talk to people. It's going to be very easy for us to do the same thing and just not talk to them at all because we don't know what to say. But Paul tells us exactly what to say here in this passage. Comfort and encourage one another with these words. What's been really great and what is really great is we don't have to do anything more than be there for one another and talk about the hope that one another has, that each other has. That's all we have to do is stop running away from one another, stop avoiding one another and just be there for one another. Be patient for one with one another and remind each other of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ And then that will give them the best opportunity to remain faithful to the Lord and not feel as if they have no hope because we are there to comfort them. Simply put, as we've seen tonight, death is not easy to handle. But when we look to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it makes it so much easier to handle because we have been given not a life of hopelessness, but a life of hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want us to conclude with one final thought. Think about these Thessalonians for a moment. They didn't know that their loved ones in Christ were going to raise one day. Yet they were still faithful. That is impressive to me. These Thessalonians were dealing with death and persecution and they were afraid that one day they might die too and they were just hoping that God would return before them not knowing any different, not knowing that they could die and it would still be okay, not understanding that fact, not being comforted by that fact, but they were still faithful. And so as I think about, as I thought about this afternoon, what would I say to my grandmother if she was going through difficulty? This is what I would say based on the example of the Thessalonians. The deaths of loved ones in Christ certainly changes our circumstances here in this world. But it does not have to change what we are here on earth to do. That is to glorify God and endure by awaiting the return of Jesus Christ as these Thessalonians did. My circumstances have certainly changed. Yes, my plans have even changed. But that does not change that every day, no matter if my loved ones are alive or they are dead, my purpose is still the same and my hope is still the same. And praise God for that, for that undying hope and that undying purpose. If there is any way that we can help you in your walk with the Lord and help build your faith in our Lord's awesome return, then we want to help you with that. What has been so great about my grandfather's death is to know that he is with the Lord. But I fear that oftentimes we don't have that security. If you're living in insecurity right now, not knowing whether or not Jesus is going to actually raise you from the dead to bring you home with him right now. 
know that this passage right here tells us that we don't have to have that insecurity if we go out that door tonight and we get hit by a car and we die or something else terrible happens to us. We don't have to have that insecurity. And so if there's any way that we can help you to have that security in Jesus Christ, will you please let us know? Will you please talk to us? Come forward to the front while we stand and while we sing.